This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. And welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. As you may remember, throughout 2022, I bought you a series on England at the World Cup, documenting every occasion that the Three Lions had played at the biggest tournament in world football. A series where I spoke with players journalists and fans who had all followed or played for England at the World Cup, getting their memories of the time. Uh, It's been a series that I was really proud of. It was hard work, uh, but thankfully appreciated by many. All of those can be found at your podcast provider of choice or threelinespodcast.com if you missed one or two. Now, Qatar was the 22nd World Cup, and England's 16th appearance. So I thought, with it still fresh in our minds, and just before we embark on another qualifying campaign for the 2024 European Championships, let's take a look back at this World Cup. Once again, we're a fan who was there, but before we chat with him, let's remind ourselves of how a small Arabian peninsula managed to secure the hosting rights of the 2022 World Cup. We need to go back to January 2009, when FIFA announced that bidding for both the 2018 and 2022 World Cups would be open until February of that same year. It was decided that a UEFA country would host 2018, And as we now know, that was to be Russia. But because UEFA had been awarded 2018, they couldn't host 2022. So Australia, Japan, Qatar, South Korea and the United States all began their pitches. On the 2nd of December 2010, on the same day that FIFA awarded Russia 2018, they announced the hosts of 2022. Much to many people's surprise, one of the favourites, Australia, were eliminated first, quickly followed by Japan and South Korea. That left the USA and Qatar. And now we have for 218. We go to 222. May I ask again the public notary of Zurich? to give me the envelope. Thank you. Shall I recall the candidates? Australia, Japan, Korea, Qatar, United States of America. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. So it was awarded to Qatar, and much like many of the bidding processes in the past, 
corruption and bribery were called into question. But there was no going back. The then FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, said at the time, The Arabic world deserves a World Cup. They have 22 countries and have not had any opportunity to organise the tournament. This really was just the tip of the iceberg. The beginning of one of the most controversial World Cups to ever be bestowed upon a nation. It was September 2013 when the English newspaper, The Guardian, first revealed a headline of Qatar's World Cup slaves. Noting that up to 44 Nepalese migrant workers had died in World Cup projects. The story really gained traction some years later when the same newspaper, in February 2021, announced that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka had died since the awarding of the World Cup. Qatar replied, stating that the vast majority of these deaths were of natural causes and in only 37 instances were they to be linked to the building of the stadiums. This was a story that wasn't going to go away. And this, coupled with Qatar's human rights issues, something that Amnesty International had been aware of for many years prior. Many players and commentators condemned the situation, such as Gary Lineker and Gary Neville. But former England star David Beckham became increasingly prominent in promoting the Qatari brand and has supposedly taken a substantial amount to be at the forefront of the promotional campaign for Qatar. As I've already mentioned, this was the 22nd World Cup and all the previous ones had been played in our English summertime, either during the months of May, June or July. In fact, its earliest start was the 27th of May 1934 and its latest finish the 30th of July 1930. But generally the final has been played recently anywhere between the 11th to the 17th of July. In 2015, five years after it was awarded to the Middle Eastern states, it was decided to change it to a winter tournament this due to the excessive heat during Qatar's months of May, June and July. And with that, it was also condensed into 29 days. The tournament would begin on the 20th of November and culminate in the final being held on the 18th of December, which by chance is Qatar's national day. As the tournament grew ever closer, as is always the way, the cost of tickets, both match and flight, accommodation prices too are announced. Q, much media condemnation. Qatar is a Muslim country and as the tournament approached, so did the questions around alcohol and that of LGBT rights, both of which are frowned upon. Many of the gay community felt that this was a World Cup they wouldn't feel safe attending. Alcohol is permitted in Qatar, in licensed premises only, basically hotels. Budweiser are a well-known FIFA sponsor 
and had agreed that beer could be sold within the stadium perimeters on match days. Days before the tournament began, there was a total U-turn by FIFA with regards to the sale of it. It would only be sold in the corporate areas within the grounds. This naturally provoked many voices saying that Qatar was ruining the experience. Although it was more the late change in direction that frustrated fans. This coupled with the change of timing of the tournament and also the change to the scheduling of games. As originally, Qatar-Ecuador was scheduled to be the third game of the tournament with Senegal-Netherlands being the opener. This, at late notice was all changed so that now the Qatar game was the opener. February 2022 also saw the illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Fortunately though, neither nation was involved in the tournament. And in the run-up to the start date, there were orchestrated fan parades throughout the Doha Corniche. It's the coastal promenade of the capital. They were portrayed by the media as being locals from the region, paid to be fake fans. Some English journalists having very little dirt to dig on the players or manager, this time turned on England fans. Some who had legitimately been part of Qatar's Supreme Committee for Organisation, for being fan leaders, many of whom had had their trips partially paid for, the media portraying them as being puppets for the Qatari regime. Still, the controversy wouldn't go away. Days before the tournament began, the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, accused the West of hypocrisy when he spoke in a news conference in Doha. We've been taught many lessons from Europeans and the Western world. I am European. For what we have been doing for 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologising for the next 3,000 years before giving moral lessons. He then went on to give a very strange speech. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Of course, I'm not uh, Qatari, I'm not Arab, I'm not African, I'm not gay, I'm not disabled, I'm not really a migrant worker. But I feel like them because I know what it means to be discriminated to be bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country, as a child at school. I was bullied because I had uh, red hair and I had these red, how do you call them? Uh, freckles. 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 Sorry? Freckles. Freckles. You see, I don't even know the term. I was bullied, of course, for that. Plus, I was Italian, so imagine didn't speak good German. And what do you do then? You lock yourself down, you go into your room, you cry, and then you try to make some friends. And you try to speak, to engage, 
And you try to get these friends to engage as well with others and others and others. You don't start accusing, fighting, insulting. You start engaging. And this is what we should be doing. In the run-up to the tournament, the FA and England, alongside Wales, France, Denmark, Germany, Netherlands and Switzerland, had all decided they would wear a one-love rainbow captain's armband, showing their support for diversity and inclusion. And on the day of the tournament, FIFA announced that this was not an option and that players would be booked for wearing the armband. And with England being the first of the European nations to potentially play wearing it, the FA backed down and said, FIFA has been very clear that it will impose sporting sanctions if our captains wear the armbands in the field of play. We were prepared to pay fines that would normally apply to breaches of kit regulations and had a strong commitment to wearing the armband. However, we cannot put our players in the situation where they might be booked or even forced to leave the field of play. With all this off-field activity, you could be forgiven for getting some football was to be played soon. So how did England get to Qatar 2022? Well, they were drawn in UEFA's Group I, a six-nation group that featured Poland, Albania, Hungary, Andorra and San Marino. Once again, we would finish top of it with eight wins and two draws. It was a campaign that was affected for fans because of Covid. San Marino and Poland at home in March 2021 were both behind closed doors. Hungary away had 58,000 in attendance, but it was a struggle for away fans, although some managed to get in. And a year later, England finished off the group with a 10-0 away win in San Marino. Then, Thursday, November the 10th, 2022, the squad was announced. And for the first time, it was a 26-man squad, increasing from 23. This was Gareth Southgate's second World Cup squad, and he selected 11 from his 2018 one. These were his men. Goalkeepers, Jordan Pickford of Everton, Nick Pope of Newcastle United, and Aaron Ramsdale of Arsenal. Defenders, Trent Alexander-Arnold of Liverpool, Connor Cody of Everton, Eric Dyer, Tottenham Hotspur, Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw from Manchester United, John Stones and Kyle Walker of Manchester City, Kieran Trippier of Newcastle United, and Ben White of Arsenal. In midfield, Jude Bellingham of Borussia Dortmund, Connor Gallagher and Mason Mount of Chelsea, Jordan Henderson of Liverpool, Calvin Phillips of Manchester City and Declan Rice of West Ham United. Up front, there was Phil Foden and Jack Grealish of Manchester City. Harry Kane, captain from Tottenham Hotspur. James Madison of Leicester City. Marcus Rashford of Manchester United. Bakayo Saka of Arsenal. Raheem Sterling of Chelsea. And Callum Wilson of Newcastle United. Now, before we get on to the actual tournament, you may remember from the previous episodes, I took a look 
at some of the things that also surrounded the World Cup, especially for those of us that watched from our sofas. Every tournament, there is the official World Cup poster. And for Qatar 2022, it was a black and white effort with some deep burgundy hints reflecting Qatar's flag. It was designed by a female Qatari artist, Buthania Al-Mufta. It focuses in on a football with the agal, the traditional headpiece worn in the country. And between the ball and the agal is the word heya. Onto the TV, for those of us that were watching at home, the BBC totally changed the way they introduced their games. In the past, they've acknowledged the host venue with both the music and graphics. This time, it was a colourful kaleidoscope type of intro with famous previous player moments duplicated across the screen. Johan Cruyff doing his turn, Roger Miller wiggling in the corner flag, Maradona's hand of God. This all accompanied to previous BBC World Cup commentary. It was made by an Edinburgh-based production company who said it celebrates the rhythm of the World Cup, the set pieces, iconic moments, fan celebrations and skill on the pitch. They wanted to play into this with a memeable scrapbook-style treatment, looping visuals and audio in a hypnotic 42 seconds of football fandom. A jamboree to celebrate the 2022 tournament. This is the stuff of dreams. They call that a tango. He's a confident boy, isn't he? Not for me, I'm afraid. The TV World Cup things are one of those things that make tournaments memorable. And this simply doesn't. ITV went with a cartoon intro, beginning with Gareth Southgate as a cox in a rowing boat. As the likes of Harry Kane is seen rowing, Bakayo Saka behind on his blurt unicorn. Uh, there was also a Danish longboat, Ronaldo on a luxury yacht, all making their way to Qatar. Gareth Bale is seen in a biplane, whilst Kylian Mbappe is seen walking the desert sand dunes with his 2018 World Cup medal around his neck. Much like the BBC, it's not very memorable. And of course, there is the official song of the tournament. This was Heya Heya, which translated means better together. And this was performed by Trinidad, Cardona, Davido, and Aisha. I promise, I promise, I promise you now. 
England were drawn in Group B with Iran, the USA and Wales. Iran already had deep issues back home. Stories about supplying weapons to Russia and the political unrest with women burning their headscarves. Hosts Qatar in Group A became the first host nation to lose their opening game and they lost 2-0 to Ecuador with many home fans leaving well before the end of the game. Now, it was also the first tournament to feature four games per day in the group stages, kicking off at 10am, 1pm, 4pm and 7pm UK time. With Qatar three hours ahead, I'll leave you to work out those local times. The shocks began on the third day, with Saudi Arabia beating Lionel Messi's Argentina 2-1. The following day saw Japan beat Germany, also 2-1, who lost their opening game at the World Cup for the second consecutive time. And it was also the first tournament to feature an all-female officiating team when they oversaw Germany against Costa Rica. So, the 2022 Qatar World Cup was also the first to use the fan leader system, bringing in fans from around the world to help enhance the tournament experience. And here, I'd like to welcome Paul Letters to the show, who was one of those fan leaders and experienced the World Cup following both Australia and England. Hello, Paul. Hi, Russell. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, all good. Thanks. All good. Good. Um, now, we've, we've spoken before. It was a little while back when uh, we spoke about your a pseudonym, I guess it could be. Uh, not your average England fan um, is the sort of social media um, side that you go under. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of, yeah, it's kind of become a pseudonym. I think you're right. It wasn't intended that way. Right. It was, it's, so it's a, a blog, um, like a web page, notyouraverageenglandfan.com, and then Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, connected to that, trying to showcase how anybody can be an England fan, all sorts of people, and you don't have to kind of fit a stereotype. And I, I suppose I felt as someone who now hasn't lived in England for over 20 years, um, I, I felt like a you know untypical kind of fan, but then with living abroad and especially when I was living in Asia, I'm in Australia now, but in, in Asia, there are way more England fans in Asia than there are in England. And I just think that's great that the, 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 you know, the England, uh, team or, or teams are so kind of, you know, popular around the world. So yeah, it was just, just trying to showcase that and it's become a kind of a platform for promoting. I probably kind of tweet and promote more stuff about uh, the women's game unless it's like the men's world cup i was obviously there and and we'll talk about that but i, d- I try to do the women's game and also amputee the england amputee football and power chair football sometimes just to try and look at football in the broadest sense yeah now i remember when we did speak yeah you mentioned that and and you're right there are so many different england teams under that england fa umbrella um, or, or banner um, and it's great that it should all be embraced but this particular one uh, we are talking the men's senior um, we're talking about Qatar uh, the World Cup there but just just to remind listeners when we did speak previous you went to Russia 
Um, and we spoke about um, you going around Russia. You're a wheelchair user yourself and, and just some of the issues you had there with ticketing um, and just general moving about. And did you have the same sort of issues as you had in Russia as in you had in Qatar? In terms of the, the general moving about, Qatar was a, a bit easier. Not as easy as Australia or the UK because there was still like curbs, even on official routes where, you know, the barriers which are set up for the World Cup will point you in a certain direction in or out of the fan festival, for example. And in order to avoid curbs, you'd have to go very, very long, long ways around. So there were things where they could have had just had ramps, uh, where they didn't and other places where they did have them to be fair but moscow was a lot harder there seemed to be very little once you got away from the fan park especially um the underground transport system was completely inaccessible not that the london underground is fully accessible <laughs> by the way um so i'm not trying to have a go at all the other countries but yeah get getting around to doha was was definitely uh doable and i was on my own in terms of like not traveling out with friends or family for the first kind of 10 days or, or so and that was still easy uh for me getting getting around uh but the ticketing it was just the same if right. you're it's the same for a wheelchair user or any disabled person if you're applying for tickets for the if you were applying for the 2018 world cup you can only apply for one other person to to sit with you so we were a family of three. Well, we are a family of three, yeah. and my, my son was nine when we went to Russia. And they literally, the, the adult had to be my companion. You know, so one of the benefits yes. is you do get a free companion uh, kind of seat ticket. But whether you take up that 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 free companion ticket or not, you're still you've still got the same problem that you can only have one person maximum sat with you so my son was actually placed for one of the matches right around the opposite side we were on one side of the pitch he was on the other age nine and we managed to get that change but we had to kick up i mean involved getting involved the bbc um tanny gray thompson the other media started contacting us because they just they couldn't believe it and what was so frustrating although our they sorted out you know our, our tickets for for russia it's just the same problem again for Qatar, and there's no reason to believe it'll be any different in North America. So, if you were a, a non-disabled person was applying for tickets in Russia, you could apply for up to four seats together. In Qatar, you could apply for up to six. But in both Russia or Qatar, if you are a wheelchair, or even if you're applying for easy access, so like you're on crutches, but you know you're not bringing your own wheelchair, something like that, yeah, you can only apply for two tickets. So you can only be a family of two, or only have one friend, and it just seems so discriminatory, so wrong, and it's very frustrating that despite doing what I can to kick up a fuss about it, it doesn't it hasn't changed. It's, it's a very strange way of thinking by by FIFA there. Um, as you say, just just your situation with three in your your family applying for tickets and your son is way over the other side. It's it's that's not right at all. Um, well, hopefully, oh, yeah. hopefully that can be changed going forward in in some way, shape, or form. And yeah, keep keep pushing them on that one, Paul. Yeah, I will. And, uh, you know, if you ask them, all they'll say is we'll, we'll do our best to sit your, your third 
person as close as possible. So in Qatar, my 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 son and then my wife flew out just due to work. She just came for the semi-finals, and um, she was within sight of us, you know, on our end of the stadium, but nowhere near within talking or even shouting distance. So. It's still pretty frustrating. And in these stadiums, obviously, were purpose built. You know, they're brand yes. new. It's like they're designed like this. But the as far uh, back as when was it? The 2017 World Athletics Championships in London. They had um, in the what was then I think called the Queen Elizabeth Stadium, you know, the Olympic Stadium yes. from yes. London 2012. They had flexible seating. So when we went to it. You could book however, I don't know what the maximum was, but there was only three of us. But you, know, you could book the two people to be next to the wheelchair. And we went to several sessions. So we come back the next day and we'd see that they've actually moved the fixed seating that kind of looked like it's bolted, well, was bolted down. Obviously, clip, clipped, clipped out chairs and clipped in chairs according to the needs of that particular day. Okay. So it, it can it can be done, and it you know it, it is done, uh, and in other sporting events that I've been to as well, uh, like track cycling, like the cricket here in Australia, just FIFA can't do it yet. Well, <laughs> I know uh, something I'd like to speak to you later in the year, um, and hopefully that the situation might be a little different. Although I say this knowing it's a FIFA event, is the Women's World Cup being held in uh, in your neck of the woods, as it were, the Women's World Cup. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe they, it, the, the situation might be a little different, but we'll, we'll find out, no doubt. But back to the men, the, uh, I followed you on social media as I have for, for some time. It looked like you had a, a great time, so many experiences. Um, but you were there sort of as, uh, in a, in a fan leader capacity. How, how did all that come about and what were the, the benefits of it? Well, it came about, roughly a year and a half before the world cup on, on social media on facebook in i guess certainly in one of the england facebook groups i don't know if it was the england travel supporters club or, or one of the other ones that i saw that they were looking for people to give feedback on their plans for the world cup so like the organizing committee and at uh, at the time, as it probably helps that at that point I wasn't working full time; I was part time, um, and I thought I've got the time, and I also with like the wheelchair experience, uh, you know, I don't know for how many other people they'll have to give feedback in terms of like wheelchair kind of needs and so on. So I thought I was in a good position to do that. It was made clear at the time there were no benefits to it. You, you were involved in Zoom meetings, and. Uh, Obviously not, you know, if you missed a meeting, you missed a meeting. And with the time zones, I, uh, I made some, I, mi I missed some. Right. So th there was, there was no benefits. And was, I also remember them saying, please don't think this is a way to get tickets for the, for the World Cup because mm. it, it, yeah, it won't be, which I, I, I thought that's great. That means people are only going to do this if they actually care. Yes. Um, so, and that, and that was, and so I was involved in these these zoom meetings so a lot of them were large group meetings and they were talking about transport one meeting accommodation and another and i had one sort of one-on-one -on -one meeting with the fifa disabilities officer who has no power over that ticketing issue frustratingly <laughs> but um there we go uh, but it wasn't yeah it was nice that that she kind of made that time well actually she reached out to me as well so it was just yeah it was just on online meetings and, and us asking questions got the fan leaders from 
from all over the world. This was before the qualification was complete. So it must have included, well, it did include country, you know, fans from all sorts of countries who, some of whom didn't, didn't make it to the World Cup in the end. And so that was that. And then I, I'd booked my flights, um, and, uh, was going to stay with a friend who we knew when we lived in Hong Kong, who then moved to Doha, Qatar. And, uh, her family said we could, we could stay there as long as we wanted to. So I was all set to go. And then in early October, World Cup obviously starting mid November, got an email from the World Cup organizing committee about to inviting us fan leaders out um, and offering to pay for flights and accommodation and inviting us to to be at the opening ceremony where they said we would have a role uh, as participants and they didn't give us any more details um, until we got there. So it was great. I, I it, in the end it, to change my flights because we were tr- flying onto the UK afterwards and it was, it just wasn't going to work. So I just kept the flights I'd already booked. So I didn't take, I didn't take the flights they were, they were offering the accommodation. I did just so, I, so that I didn't impose on my friend for like what would have been a whole month. I right. thought, right. Uh, yeah. So I stayed in this apartment with a couple of other fan leaders who'd been flown out from England. On my plane from Brisbane, by the way, were Australian fan leaders. Um, and I met some of them at the airport and, you know, had a drink, drink with some of them. And, and some were going to go to the World Cup anyway, but some weren't. They just got this email in October saying, here's a, you know, here's a freebie trip. <laughs> Off you go. So I could totally understand people out there uh, kind of having criticisms of the process. Um, but I think the concept of having fan leaders is a, is a, is a positive one. How you do it is, is a different matter. Just needs a little bit of tweaking here and there. Cause I can't imagine it's something that's going to go away now. Well, yeah, I, I hope not. I mean, but I know that, you know, it must feel to, to, to some fans, uh, a, a kind of like a bit of a random process. I mean, to me, it didn't feel so random because like I say, it was just, it was advertised on social media. Mm. Um, I'm, it, it was made clear there were no particular benefits at the time. And I just got this massive surprise in October. Um, and work gave me unpaid leave so that I could go earlier than I originally was going to go, which was great, uh, to, yeah, for the world, world cup. So yeah, but once we got there, they had things like they had a fan tournament. So that all the 32 nations who were there, fans played in a, like a five a side tournament and you played in your groups. So obviously England played Iran, um, oh, Wales, yeah. USA. And that kind of, you know, that was at a fan festival park as well, which was, which was huge. And there was a lot, there was a lot there to do. And I just, it just seems such a simple thing. You know, why has that not been thought of before? That kind of like getting people together. You don't necessarily have to pay for their flights and or whatever. You could be fans who are going to be there anyway. Um, but I thought, yeah, that was, a, that was a good thing. And also yeah. outside a lot of the stadiums, this is slightly, well, it's not specific to fan leaders, but there were a, a number of stadiums that had like a five a side pitch outside. So you had this like kind of almost United Nations of languages and huh. uh, you know, people having a kick about. Killing time before the, before after they'd gone in through the the out the outside kind of uh, the first gate on the outside, but before they went into the stadium, having a kick about before the match. Nice one. So, how many games did you get to see? And, and tell us about that that opening game that you went to. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, the so the opening game. So well, the way the letter or email said that. We were sort of have a small role participating in the opening ceremony. We had no idea, but what it transpired to be, and 
was that for a few seconds, the camera, the TV cameras, would go from each national fan group of the 32 nations to another, and there would be like a bar of a song um, related to that to that country and uh it, it was a little bit of a mess up in the once we actually got to the stadium there was no wheelchair access oh. anywhere near the england fans so i've been given a ticket and I, I guess partly my fault for not double checking the ticket i just given it w- once we arrived so the day the day of the game or maybe possibly the day before and i should have been looking for you know w- wheelchair ticket it didn't say that so when i got to the ground at least they were able to change it but it meant i wasn't with the england fans but i met up with them afterwards and they said they weren't even aware of the actual camera being on them or that they were supposed to be you know singing a a a line of a song at particular times they maybe could have done with a rehearsal (laughs) but and again, a, a nice, nice idea to, especially for, I mean, the game, right? It was Qatar versus Ecuador. So I wonder whether it's partly a way to, you know, make the stadium fall and to make it look, like, make it look good. I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair on Qataris. Maybe the Qataris themselves would have taken the seats. Otherwise, I don't know. So yeah, you asked uh, how many games did I get to? So originally when I thought I'd be flying out at the end of November, uh, managed to get tickets just through the usual channels well mainly through fifa and one or two through the england travel supports club for about 10 games but then when i was able to go out earlier because really that that kind of letter uh enabled me to take it to work and and to get unpaid leave which i wouldn't have otherwise got i mean obviously you know there was no no scheming about it on my part Mm. i just gave them the information i had and to my pleasant surprise, they, they let me go, which anyway, they allowed me in answer to your question. Uh, how many games did I get to see? 23. Wow. So yeah, it was amazing. And the majority of those would have been group games, which cost me 11 pounds for a wheelchair ticket. And with that, you get one companion ticket free. So yeah, most of them were, uh, yeah, 11 pounds. Then obviously the prices went up and by the time we got to the semis, I don't remember how much they were, but, uh, they were, yeah, it was, it was getting steep. And for the final, I only applied for like England conditional tickets. So it turned out to be a cracking final, but uh, I don't know. It would have cost for the family thousands of, I was going to say dollars because we live in Australia, but a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> but 23 games, it was utterly amazing. So. Just yeah, such a, a buzz and uh, a, a delight to be able to see and meet with fans from all over the world. It was brilliant. I know that a lot of people sort of made it a mission to try and get to every ground. Um, was that? Did you manage to do that in, as part of those twenty three games? And and did you find it easy just in general getting around Qatar and and Dar? Because obviously that the World Cup was this first where it was held all within, I don't know, the space of an hour, hour and a half between the furthest participating um, stadiums. Yeah, it was... I know some people who did more than two games in a day. I don't know if any, I don't know if anyone managed to do four. I don't, th- I think they would have had to miss part of games well, to do that. That was, that was a thing that um, a couple of people sort of famously done. Uh, they, they went and saw half a game or a third of a game and then moved on to another um but i I personally i can't see the enjoyment in that 
No, no. I mean, I did a couple of days where I had two games in the on on the same day, but that other that was that was my uh, maximum. And you know, most all, most of those games, of course, I didn't know that I was going to be there for the first two weeks of the tournament. That yeah. wasn't all confirmed until mid October. So I was just on FIFA dot com um every evening <laughs> and so, literally i'd wake up in the middle of the night and i'd go i'd get on it on my phone just trying to get tickets trying to get tickets and uh yeah that's how i was able to get how i was able to get so many yeah getting around so there was the, the one the stadium in the desert al bait which was the one that looked like a big kind of tent marquee oh, yeah. tent that was that was there was no kind of normal public transport to that but there were buses that laid on for uh, obviously for, for matches. And the first one or two times I went there, I actually kind of Ubered up there with, with friends, but we soon realized that the Uber drivers, just like us, didn't know once you got there exactly which turn off to take and then where to go, <laughs> you know. So I ended up using just the, the transport that was organized by FIFA and the, and the organizing committee. And to be fair, certainly I can only talk about the wheelchair, but the buses that allow wheelchairs on, because obviously that was what I was on. That they were brilliant. I, and I, yeah, re- it was really you didn't have to wait long, and obviously they knew exactly where to drop you off close to the yeah. stadium. So that was really well done. Did you find that? And we sort of go back to that that first game about trying to get sort of Qataris, the locals, into the. Um, that that first game to make it look full. Did you find that in general the the Qataris took to the tournament because there was there was quite a lot of I don't know so social media talk um, and you kind of take it with a, with a pinch of salt. But there was talk that some games sort of filtered out as as they went on. Uh, maybe some of the lesser games, with the, the greatest respect to the some of the teams that were taking part. Um, but they were sort of filled by locals that in the end maybe thought mm, not interested now. Did you get that impression? Well, even just it's it's pretty complicated because only ten percent of the people who live in Qatar are Qataris. So ninety percent are foreign right. workers. And then you've got the million or whatever of us kind of visitors added on. But yeah, I certainly met and had like conversations with about football with probably three or four Qataris, but I had way more conversations with Ugandans and Kenyans and people from India and so on. But uh yeah, they I don't know the, the ones I met, but I suppose I met them around football areas like the fan festival and like the kind of the ticketing center and so on. And where you had to go to pick up your kind of fan pass card. And they were the Qataris I met there were, yeah, very enthusiastic about football. And there was uh, one woman, young, youngish, I think, but head to toe, uh, wearing a hijab, all, all black. And she saw me wear my England top. And she just came up to me and said, is it coming home? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was brilliant. (laughs) What did did you say to that? I I, I laughed. I I think I just said, well, I really hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't we all hope? Um, Yes. (laughs) So with regards to England, what what games did you see of theirs? I saw all the England games. Yeah. What? The um, so it started with the uh, the six two against Iran, and there was the yeah, nil so, nil, yeah, nil nil, yeah, against the USA, and then it was three nil, wasn't it, against Wales? And 
So those first two games, no, in fact, all of them, I didn't have tickets until a month before or, or, or less in that final month. But of course, wheelchair tickets, there were sometimes there are wheelchair tickets left when there aren't any other sorts of tickets left. So, right. um, yeah, it was just brilliant. That Iran game, seeing six goals, um, was fantastic. The US game obviously was, was pretty dull. Um, and I took the friend, the, uh, friend Karina, who we, we still did for the second half of the tournament. Um, after my son arrived and then later on my wife, we, we stayed with her in her house. Um, and I, but I asked her if she wanted to see a game and, uh, that was the USA game that I took her to. So I kind of felt a bit bad. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the nil nil is the, the, the one that she got, but then, you know, what can you do? She'll never go again. <laughs> <laughs> probably not <laughs> uh and then we we faced senegal in the uh the round of 16 um and then of course france in the uh in the quarter final wasn't it that france game we we were so so on it for for much of it just yeah. didn't go our way obviously the uh the penalty is the one that probably people will will think about more um but but what what are your memories of of that game and and how it all went yeah so my yeah, my feeling at the time and I suppose, well, you know yourself when you're there at the game you you kind of get more of a chance to as you leave the match and you, with your family or friends or whatever to to gather your own thoughts whereas when you watch it on tv you've immediately got all the tv pundits telling you whether england were good enough or not but i felt they played really well of course yeah, the missed penalty. We just don't know. That would have obviously just just made it a draw. I, I thought, you know, France were just so clinical. They they're just so good at taking their chances. Um, I I I didn't come away with a lot of regret. Afterwards, I did think, why wasn't our top scorer of the tournament? And of course, this feels even more the case now. And you see the way he's continued to play, Marcus Rashford. Why didn't he start that game? I think he came on with about 20 minutes left. So that, you know, there were things that's something that definitely could have been done better. But I kind of, yeah, I can't obviously was, was gutted, but, um, I had it, my journey home actually was, um, with my son. We got on one of the, one of the buses from the, stadium yeah that was our bait out out the one out in the desert and on that bus was a a moroccan wearing wearing a moroccan shirt so there was quite a lot of of people going to see games you know f- who aren't their actual country so i know that happens in every world cup but i i guess it happened more in this one although if you're at the tunisia or moroccan games it didn't feel like it they, it felt like they packed out the whole stadium i think i saw a couple of morocco games i think it was after morocco portugal just on the um, underground train, it was full of Moroccan fans celebrating, of course, and the whole train was bouncing up. And I felt like I was lifting out of my wheelchair up into the air and back down again. Um, they couldn't, it, it was crammed. And uh, you know, when you first got on there, you're thinking, okay, is this going to be safe? But they, they couldn't have been nicer. And when they realized I needed to get to the exit and my son was with me as well to get out, they were fantastic at making way. So yeah, lots of brilliant memories inside and outside of the stadiums. Yeah. They certainly made their presence felt the Moroccans, didn't they? By all accounts. Oh yeah. Those fans are just wonderful. 
But anyway, this Moroccan guy had been watching England, France, and I had my England shirt on, obviously, and got talking. We swapped shirts, and he was a, a, prof- a professional player. He just retired through injury. Really? Yeah, so he'd been he played in Saudi Arabia, in the US, and in Morocco. And he was he, so he was on this sort of the bus that you're only supposed to get if you've got some sort of disability. Or and he was fully on his feet, but you know, walking with a limp. Um, and he was there, and then so was a guy called Frank, who I had met on my first day in Doha, and just on the street, he came up behind me and uh, said, how can I help you? Where do you want to go? And he was volunteering, uh, it turned out, with uh, uh, with uh, the higher card, you know, the fan pass kind of program. Oh, yes. But uh, that that didn't apparently didn't get him access to any any actual seeing any matches. So anyway, he gave me a lot of help, and I offered him one of my companion tickets. So for my for those first sort of ten ten games or so before my son arrived, I was looking for for people to take to games, and I'd made a conscious decision in the few days before I left Australia that um, I could look for migrant workers because obviously that, that's a big issue in Qatar and yeah. take them to games that they might not otherwise be able to, to get to. Um, so yeah, Frank was the character I bumped into on the, again on the bus on the way back. And we, we just had a good laugh. And in fact, he actually called me earlier today. So we, we've, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've stayed in touch and yeah, it was such a privilege being able to take different people from different countries all around the world to, to to the games because although i was able to get the tickets cheap they did in the very beginning they put on a small number of tickets which i believe were the same price for qatari residents uh and you know 11 pounds but they they just sold out straight away and for most of the migrant workers from sub-saharan africa or from south asia the the, the price of the tickets after that was was for many of them anyway was was unaffordable we're sort of running out of time to probably cover such a, a vast topic, um, but that subject of of migrant workers obviously was a, a worldwide story. How did you find it whilst you're out there and, and speaking with Frank? What was his experience? Yeah, I learned a lot from 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 Frank and and also you know, other guys that I've met. There's a real hierarchy, and it doesn't sound particularly nice to say it, but when you've heard it from so many different people from so many different countries, the Qataris, if you're a Qatari adult, you get given thirty thousand pounds a year just for being a Qatari adult because they've got so much wealth, mainly mm. from gas. So they're at the top of the tree and they get privileges in terms of jobs. And then there's a hierarchy going down, depending on which country you come from. And right at the bottom on the worst type of work visa and the only type of visa that's uh, allowed from these, these countries is Uganda and Kenya. And where they and I took some of these guys to games. So and got to know their stories. You know, living in dormitories with six or eight people in a small room with no fridge, only getting the minimum wage, which which they had famously brought in as, as FIFA had put pressure on in the years building up to the World Cup. Only getting the FIFA wage if you worked uh, twelve hours a day, seven days a week. Anything less than that's deducted from your wages, and lack of healthcare and and so many other issues so if you were from 
uh south asia you're more likely to if you uh, i guess if you have the skills as well but more likely to get a job in 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 retail or it um or working like in a, a way into a phone company trying to sort out you know a qatari sim card and the, there's about 30 people i could see working in their massive store all ethnically south asian except for one who was dressed as the, the men tend to do and the women for that matter in traditional qatari dress had his own separate desk at the back he's the boss mm. and, and it doesn't matter how hard or how clever or whatever any of the people below him are be when this qatari guy retires that job can only be taken by another qatari <laughs> and that that's the way it is yeah it's uh, well they, it's their country isn't it and as I say, it's such a, a deep topic to to go into. I say in the, in the short time that we've got left, I, I did see that you were actually on the pitch as, was it a mascot or or how, how was that determined? Oh, on the pitch. Yeah. yeah so you, just for the national anthem, yeah. was it? Yeah, it was very random. Um, my son and I, we got to that game as Portugal, South Korea uh fairly early but then we got to all, pretty most of the games early and it maybe an hour or 45 minutes before the game we were sat in our seat so i was in my wheelchair with sunset next to me and two fifa officials in black sh- uh, shirts came over and said that fifa started this um scheme to take two people for each game in wheelchairs uh, onto the pitch one sort of to go with each team and I was one of the, yeah, one of the people who was chosen. So wow. my son and I were then, uh, taken through, uh, the VIP hospitality area. And if anybody had any doubts about whether there was alcohol available at games, there most certainly was, gosh, oh, right. bottles of champagne and wine and et cetera. Um, anyway, we had to go through that area to get it to the right place to get the lift down. And then we got, get, got to kind of be in the tunnel as the players came back in from their warm up and the, the, a number of the players came up to us. We were not allowed to, you know, approach the players, but most of the Portuguese uh, team came up and, and shook our hands and said hello, which was, which was lovely. Um, and then I was wheeled out onto the pitch. Yeah. And I was standing, well, not standing, sorry, my wheelchair. The referees were standing behind me and then just over to their left. So a couple of meters on one side um, was Ronaldo as captain of Portugal, at, 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 still at that point. And then on my uh, right was Son for yeah, South Korea. And it was a very surreal moment. Yeah, just being in the center of the, of the pitch of the World Cup, you felt like you were in the center of the world. It was brilliant. Amazing. Amazing. Paul. Many thanks for uh, for just taking us back to to Qatar there and the 2022 World Cup. Sounds like a uh, an experience to never be forgotten, um, and I'm sure there'll be more more World Cup experiences to come, um, of which I, uh, I hope to to speak to you maybe later in the year if you if you're keen. Yeah, that's great. I've already got my tickets for uh, FIFA 2023 Women's World Cup, so yeah, I'll be there. Love that. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Russell. All the best. Always enjoy talking with Paul. You can go follow him on Twitter at NotYourAverageEnglandFan. And as I mentioned, because of his location... I'm hoping we can catch up again when the Women's World Cup comes around. 
just getting around that time difference, which again, I am so grateful for the lengths people go to to help me and contribute to the podcast. But once again, thank you very much to him for sharing his memories of Qatar. Morocco, they were the team of the tournament, becoming the first African side to make the semi-finals. Holders, France, once again made it to the final. And there was a possibility of it being a rerun of the 2018 final. But Argentina saw off Croatia to make it to the final for the first time since 2014. It was set up to be the Messi-Mbappe final, who incidentally... Both play their club football for PSG in France, a club owned by Qatar. Argentina would take a 2-0 lead through Messi and Di Maria, and then with 80 minutes on the clock, France were awarded a penalty. Mbappe scored, then a minute later, he equalised. The game would go to extra time, where Messi scored again, before France were awarded another penalty with four minutes left. Once again, Mbappe scored from the spot and became the first player since a certain Jeff Hurst to score a hat-trick in the World Cup final. It would go to penalties, where Argentina would win 4-2 and lift the trophy for the first time since 1986. Despite all the off-field talk in the lead-up to the competition... Once the football began, it became one of the most enjoyable World Cups in some time. Despite England not fulfilling the dream of it coming home, and many supporters who made the trip came away with changed perceptions of Qatar and it being an interesting place to visit. So the dream continues for many. By the time the 2026 World Cup comes around, it'll be 60 years of hurt and about time that came to an end thank you very much for listening i hope you've enjoyed it my name is russell osborne this has been the three lions podcast you can find all the previous episodes in this series and so much more over at three lionspodcast.com or your podcast provider of choice i'll be back again with you very soon with some more england content Hope you can join me for it. So until then, take care. Cheers. <laughs>